to the third season of Gold Diggers. This is the podcast created by 25 unsuspecting psychology students at the University of Georgia, led by our frenetic professor, Dr. Michelle Van Dellen, who's an expert in the field of social psychology. We're going to be mining the research of goal pursuit and self-regulation to bring you everyday stories with a scientific twist. Follow us on this journey as we unearth the grit and determination of the ordinary individual who digs deep to achieve something special. We know as much as you do about where this is going. Goals! When your goal is who you view yourself as, you perceive everything that happens in the world around you in relation to that goal. Goals can act as our identities, create a schema for interpreting what we experience on a day-to-day basis. This is pretty normal. If all you ever dreamed about is to become a kindergarten teacher, your identity may fuse with that goal, and you'll be more attuned to say <laughs> when markers in children's books go on sale than a firefighter would. In this episode, we'll be discussing a really common goal identity, to be a parent. Evie and Bill are people who always wanted to be parents, but then they were met with an incredibly difficult external obstacle, the loss of their children. They're currently in the middle of dealing with this new reality. This season, we focus on what it's like to reach your goals by taking a closer look at the motivation and self-regulatory behaviors that got you to the finish line. But what is it like to be in the middle of pursuing a goal? Some people are able to work towards their goal at a steady pace and ultimately reach them without any trouble, while others are faced with severe obstacles that can halt their progress. When you're in the middle of something hard, one thing you really need is good social support. And honestly, it's hard to know the correct way to truly help someone. We can come off as insecure and inconsiderate and end up wishing that we hadn't said anything at all. We talk with Evie and Bill and reference research to come up with a few ways to make sure that people get the support they need and decrease the awkward encounters that we've all come to regret. Stay tuned to hear me, Nessie Abba, and Emily, Get to know Evie, Bill, and their situation a little bit better. I'm Evie. I am uh, originally from California. Made my way to Georgia, now working at the University of Georgia, um, Office of University Architects Office. I'm the office manager there. Um, And... I don't know what else. I I, I don't even know what else. What, <laughs> what else can I say? I don't know what else to say. You go. Um, I'm Bill. I'm from New York yeah, originally and uh, lived uh, in California with Evie for 10 years before we moved here about into Georgia about 15 years ago. And um, I have been in retail my whole life. Uh, and haven't really worked uh, in the last year or so. About five years ago, the unthinkable happened. And uh, we moved to Georgia and raised the most beautiful, wonderful human beings that you could ever meet. Um, Beautiful musicians, beautiful heart and souls, just really good-spirited boys. Like We are so proud of them. William and Alexander, their names. Um... I wish everybody in the world just got to meet them just one time because they're that amazing, I think. <laughs> so what were your life 
slash personal goals before the accident and how did your goals change in the first few years after it and how are they different now? Do you want to answer? Sure. <laughs> the, uh, I think we both, uh, did, you know, every parent is, uh, is motivated by being a parent and, yeah. and, uh, making a way for their kids. And I didn't, uh, I don't think we really realized until after the accident that like, that was our main slash only thing that was driving us for, you know, you need a reason to get up and go to work and do it every day. And, uh, when, you know, after the accident, it is, you know, it's probably not a surprise. We, all that was gone. There when dealing with grief and loss, there are two types of stressors that grieving individuals deal with, loss-oriented stressors and restoration-oriented stressors. Each day, they will deal with both of them. Loss-oriented stressors deal with grief, intrusion, denial, or avoidance of restoration change. Restoration-oriented stressors deal with new changes, doing new things, distraction, and avoidance of grief. And after coping with loss and restoration stressors, there is a period of time known as respite. During respite, there is a pause in the coping process. Respite allows the bereaver to reach a temporary positive emotional state where they are re-strengthened and don't need to think about their stressors anymore. For Evie, this would be her time spent with her friends. Don't just go and knock on people's doors. <laughs> yeah. no. You're not calling them first. They're not answering the door. And they and if you do, you can cause anxiety and like, you know, like they're they're just it's because we're not social. We're meant to be. And like we just need to be with each other and spend time and laugh and look at each other in the eyes. And when you guys are you know, texting with each other, you don't see their face and their smile and feel that energy and the, and, and it, you just, when you spend a fun night with your friends or a fun night with your family, like that feeling is, is endless. And like, we just didn't get that enough. And I know that is my focus. Like I try so hard <laughs> to spend time, not even just at work, but like, so what are you guys doing after work? Where do you guys want to go? You guys want to go to happy hour? You guys want to go out to dinner? Like, um, you guys want to come over? Like we're always trying to get people to spend time with us because that truly, like for me, is the one thing that helps me. That I don't know. I, I feel like um, she was like... <sighs> I always explain this before, um, like, when you're a kid and you have, your life is like a jar of sand and, and, you know, you get yelled at by your parents or somebody bullies you at school and a little bit of the sand comes out of your jar and, but like, cartoons, good bowl of cereal, like, <laughs> a hug from your mom, everything fills that jar and it really pretty much stays full unless it's something tragic, you know, like in a childhood life, like it, it could be something tragic that empties that sand. But, like, in your adulthood, I feel like that jar of sand doesn't fill as fast because it takes something bigger, like yeah. trips to Disneyland right. <laughs> or a family vacation. You don't have those game nights with your family like you used to back in the day. Like, that's the stuff that fills that jar. And the, the things that empty it 
happen way more often. And so you're living on a, a jar that's just got barely any pebbles left in it. I just feel like that being with people fills that jar. Yeah. Um, it's just not enough. <laughs> Sometimes it's not enough. <laughs> you know, and, and at work you're stressed and you don't always get to... I do love where I work right now. I really do. That's good. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> so it really helps me. It really does. And I feel like I, I, I definitely don't um, go into those deep bouts of depression like I used to um, here. And then I think it's a lot better, the, you know. It's people, though. In our interview, Evie and Bill express that their children will always be a part of them and their lives moving forward. Their similar motivations moving forward have helped them through the grieving process tremendously. You're never going to forget them. You think about them in every second and every ounce of your being there with us. Uh, but it, it, is, it is hard. I feel like, okay, somebody's going to see me. They know I'm still alive. Like, I'm sure they would be happy to see me smiling. I guess in your internal fear is that somebody's going to think you're happy. And, and you don't want them to think you're happy. <laughs> It's common for grieving parents to tie their new goals to their children in some way. Evie and Bill's personal strivings all incorporate their children's lives and their own personal goals, despite the outcome. Evie and Bill have been oscillating between states of numbness and intense emotion. Though they have both experienced an increase in emotionally charged moments, they don't have what researchers would consider high emotional reactivity because their emotional reactivity is not variable. Evie mentions depression, which is marked by chronically low affective reactivity. But as time goes by, she's been able to experience more periods of joy. And it's those periods of joy that we always look forward to, right? Finding those moments. Of course, because if you're going through something this hard, you need something positive to look to. Yeah. You need that light at the end of the tunnel. I think Evie found more solace in, in having the, the structure of getting out of the house and being with people at work and, and, uh, and, and that kept your mind off the yeah. heaviest stuff, I guess, um, yeah. for you know, a few hours every day. And, um, for me, it was kind of the opposite where I, I just, um, I had always worked a lot of hours and, uh, uh, you know, crazy I, stressful jobs yeah I worked a lot yeah. and put up with a lot of stuff and then I just didn't want to I didn't see any reason to, to do it anymore grieving parents often experience grief in two ways as a couple and individually however grief is an individualized experience which can make communication between partners quite difficult communication about differing approaches and timelines for grief and healing can help spouses provide comfort and support for their partner. In a way, it can seem as though grief itself becomes part of the identity of grieving parents. The ability to share grief with a spouse is one of the most important parts of healing as individuals and as a couple. There's no one way to feel grief. Communication plays a key role in our ability to help one another through hardships because we all experience grief or stress in unique ways. Identities can also come in all shapes and sizes which begs the question, are our identities tied to one aspect of our personalities or can we maintain several identities at once?
that's a really good question. Research suggests that we have several internal identities that compete for recognition within ourselves. Mm. That's really interesting. So what happens when a goal becomes part of who we are and something out of our control interferes with that identity? As Bill mentioned earlier, being parents was the main motivator in their daily lives. Once they lost this identity, Evie and Bill had a difficult time going back to the things that they were once motivated to do. And people experiencing loss are faced with a discrepancy with the way they viewed themselves before and how they view themselves after. It can be helpful to acknowledge the gravity of your situation while actively working to change the way you perceive and interact with the world around you. After being thrown off course by such an uncontrollable event, how do you move past and how do you cope with it? Uh, I mean, we, we, we did. We we tried to volunteer. We abandoned that. We tried to start the foundation. We stopped that. We tried to go to group therapy because we thought eventually we'd be able to offer um, advice and help for other other parents suffering from the loss of their children. And we I couldn't do that. It's quite common for people who experience extreme grief recovery to feel that their goals are unachievable. Their goals usually lack specificity, are loss-related, and deal with emotional stress. It's much harder for them to imagine a future goal with a new future and possible outcomes. And on top of that prolonged grief, older adults who face normatively unexpected life challenges like the death of a child don't find it as easy to let go of once attainable goals and re-engage in new ones. Even then, if they do disengage from unattainable goals, it doesn't necessarily mean they're going to find it easy to re-engage a new goal. The result? A crisis resolving around this one question. What's my future? I feel like, you know, um, helping them find themselves in their early adulthood and, and uh, um, find those music goals for them and helping them learn um, different music and find different music. Those were our, you know, those were our goals of... Um, I, I just, you know, I'm never going to, you know, I'm, I'm never going to be a grandmother. I don't, I don't get to have those kinds of like goals in my future. So I, I don't know. I, I really don't look that far ahead. I really yeah. don't want to live a long life. <laughs> I don't want to live until I'm 80, you know, without them. I, I feel like. You know, we think about things, too, like when we moved here, what do we hold on to? We don't have, we don't have anybody to pass things down to anymore. Like, you know, of course we have nieces and nephews that we will eventually, you know, be able to pass things on to. But in your, in your head and in your heart right away, you're like, well, I have nothing to, I don't have that future anymore. So what is my future? <laughs> I don't like to think about that. Yeah. Facing the question of who am I following such a life-changing event can be daunting. Even coping with the loss can be near impossible. How we deal with these stressors vary widely between individuals, but there are common ways everyone copes with loss, whether immediately after or a few years later. There are four subcategories of strategies that many people take when it comes to grieving. One is avoiding triggers of the loss. Get out of bed. I, I think yeah. that the first thing we thought of was, um, wow, it's really, really hard to be in the house. And a, a lot of, in in the one group therapy session that I went to, 
um, a lot of other parents who lost children didn't understand how we could leave how we could leave their house how we, we how we could touch their rooms but it took a year for us to decide that and um and I couldn't I couldn't see their rooms I couldn't be in the house I couldn't every time that light went across that fireplace like I just it was so hard and I I just thought I'm not gonna make it if I stay here like I'm really not and uh so that was the first goal. Was to that was our first goal, really. Yeah. It took us a year. A second aspect of avoiding triggers of a loss can be the removal of physical representations. And uh, so that was our first goal, to to uh, get a house. And, you know, like, when we came here, too, we were like, put up pictures of them and then like take them down and put up the pictures and then take them down because like that constant reminder and it sounds so horrible mm -hmm. to try to like I'm not ignoring their existence but to not be a constant reminder mm -hmm. it was really hard so as you can see they're you know they're um their guitars yeah. so <laughs> it's very uh it's you're never gonna forget them Another tactic that we all know well is distraction. It is hard, and I think that's what Billy was saying about me going to work, like that nine-hour distraction. Um, and that's yeah. probably why I left alumni, because I felt like I wasn't busy enough there. Yeah. I, yeah. I just needed more of a challenge, more of a distraction, more work, um, because at any downtime, is the first thing that is going to pop into your head. Evie initially found solace in distracting herself with work. Using distractions can be beneficial in the early stages of the grieving process, but they can be maladaptive if you become dependent on them. Evie utilized distractions until she found a different healthy coping me mechanism, expressing her emotions through art. It wasn't great, um, but then I found abstract painting, which is kind of like finger painting. It's just like a big old mess, and uh, and it's fun, and it, it's so therapeutic. And I um, I love, and I never thought it was that great, but then he started to like hang my art yeah. in the house, and That's so and um, I started to get brave enough where people were like, oh my god, it's so cool. Like where mm -hmm. I would start giving them as birthday presents and and um like just some tiny little canvases you know like um but just that like is amazing it's amazing like it really is helpful and I never if there was something else I could do I you know I would love to like do yoga someday <laughs> um meditating I, you know I used to do that a long time ago meditating and uh I reading I used to read a ton um I can't focus right now like it's so hard to focus on it I just can't I have to it's constant distraction avoiding triggers and creating distractions can be crucial when it comes to getting through those initial stages of grief when everything seems to pull you into a downward spiral transitioning from these tactics to more sustainable coping mechanisms and the later stages of grief has a positive impact on your ability to accomplish everyday activities and adjust to life after loss. For mom, and during the holidays, it's so crazy. Like, 
it's so hard and you're doing all the shopping and all the wrapping and all the um, parties and cooking and cleaning and decorating and 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 I was like oh well maybe it's a gift like I don't have to do that so I'm not gonna shop I'm not gonna decorate I'm not gonna do any of that which sounds hard like and horrible but like it would be so hard to go to somebody's house and see them giving gifts to their children yeah. <laughs> or you know or I just we can do it like no holidays <laughs> I can't even imagine, but holidays can be especially jarring due to the abundant triggers. As Evie mentioned, seeing other families give gifts to their kids makes it particularly difficult to go to sell, to go celebrate holidays. Loss can bleed into many aspects of our lives, from daily activities to spontaneous events. Yeah, and we, you know, we almost like expect holidays and big events to be more challenging but we rarely consider how loss will affect our daily lives. So something as simple as going to the movies or watching your favorite TV show can suddenly trigger your grief. Sometimes daily activities to spontaneous events, everything can be difficult. So many movies and tears that we're just like, okay, we're going to see a movie, but we knew it was kind of like a political movie, but still it was like very heavy and like, it's, movies are really hard for us now. I think yeah, shows, TV shows, like people say, oh my gosh, you have to watch this show. I'm like, does it have kids? Does it have families? Is there a car accident? <laughs> like, what, what am I going to see here? <laughs> Another typical coping process most grieving parents employ, aside from avoidance and distraction, is that of meaning making, specifically rooted in spirituality or religion. What I told them was that, like, we're all heaven is home and that's where we are from and that we come here to you know live on earth to become better spiritual beings and um i feel like they're they are waiting for us here we see that evie really finds herself spiritually and believes that the family will be reunited today then you know we heard cardinals are uh signs from heaven ladybugs and cardinals are signs from heaven and after the accident, we have been just, it's a constant flow. And like in a year after, two cardinals moved into the neighborhood. <laughs> and like, we see them. Evie and Bill tend to spot the signs of their children's presence through the cardinals and find that even after their loss, they still feel with them in spirit. While also engaging in coping behaviors, some parents find it hard to stop themselves from comparing. In Evie and Bill's case, they found themselves comparing their situation to that of others all the time. For example, after Evie and Bill lost their sons, one of William's friends was in a similar accident that left her in a permanent coma state. Bill talked about the differences between the loss of their sons and the loss experienced by their friend's family. You know, I think about, um, I like a lot of like those true crime stories, and, and I think about parents who have lost their children to murders or kidnappings and like I again can stand back and say oh gosh I could never make it through that I can never make it knowing that they you know um were out like kidnapped if they were out there somewhere like how does a parent go through that like girl that that they were with that night um her mom can't and dad can't talk to her anymore will never talk to her again she won't live a full life she won't get married all the things that we're going through, 
but they also have to take care of her in a bed and a wheelchair wheelchair 24 hours a day and yeah. and it's and she's got all kinds of other health problems and she gets infections and stuff like that so it's uh oh, i mean we her, her, it's crazy even with all of these coping mechanisms and strategies for handling unexpected changes sometimes recovery seems impossible like I always say this it's not like a lifetime movie where everybody has this great ending. Yeah. Right. So we're kind of like imagining your head like it'd be like yeah. a lifetime movie, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think everybody imagines that for you. Everybody yeah. wants you to, you know, turn into this great lifetime movie, but it's just been happening. We, you know, struggled a lot. Oh, this past four years and you know with work and depression and loneliness and I, I just think that um, it it's just not it's not what everybody thinks it's gonna be or maybe because we all watch too many movies <laughs> and we don't know enough families who have been through it you know yeah maybe we were talking about the foundation I think you mentioned this about like the depression but like what um, I guess what kind of made you realize like oh this isn't going to be as like like what i imagined it to be like what were the i was the daily like routines or like what i think we just wanted so badly to you know what william and alex would have wanted was to um you know kind of like nuji space to bring more music to kids who would be turned away if they hadn't had the opportunity or the money or the means to have it and it just wasn't the right place, or there we didn't find the right. Yeah, there was. We didn't. We found that the need wasn't what we thought yeah. it was going to be, and yeah. we didn't really have our heads screwed on straight enough yeah. to focus on something like that that we had never done before. And we often hear about these recovery stories in film, right? Following tragedy, the family learns to recover and conquer their demons and bounce back like so quickly within what ninety minutes. <laughs> However, positive fantasies turn a blind eye to potential obstacles that people may face when actually recovering. This lowers the chance of actually overcoming unforeseen obstacles, like depression, suicidal ideation, and loneliness. Some people are left to face where they stand with their goals and where they want to go with them. Some find the courage to move forward while others are stuck. Going back to like the unattainable goal, Thing. Do you think it's easier to like stick with an unattainable goal rather than jump to a new one? Yes. <laughs> yeah, because it's a it's a it's a dream um, that would be great if it happened, but you don't have to work towards it. <laughs> you don't have to do anything to like make decisions or or try to attain it or fail and fail failing at it again. Like you know, I I feel like. I don't think we're that concerned with the future. I mean, I know I'm not. It's yeah. I'm not, It really is. Yeah. And I don't want to sound cliche about it, but we're just like we we're just trying to get through most days and do it all again tomorrow. And I know that's yeah. everyone's life in a in a sense, but the um, what it like everything we thought was going to be in our future is now not in our future. Yeah. So it's all brand new to us and I, yeah. we don't care that much about it. 
Evie and Bill are stuck in what is called a frozen goal state. So frozen goal states are unattainable goals that aren't actively in pursuit. We may not seem committed to these goals or exert much effort in pursuing them, but they're still very important, especially to us. Many of Evie's and Bill's goals prior to the accident aren't attainable anymore. Rather, they've come up with goals they have to achieve in the future, like Jazz Club. A super far dream. <laughs> but I would love to open, we would love to open a music venue. Like, I, I would love, love, love to have a music venue in their honor where musicians come and play, you know, and, yeah. and, uh, a, maybe a little jazz bar even like true like where people uh, I feel like some venues people are just coming to drink but I feel like jazz clubs people who go there like true music appreciation yeah. <laughs> like you know you there's <laughs> there's no amps there's no crazy drunk people like they're just <laughs> sitting there like you could hear the piano you could hear that standing bass like you could hear like a you know somebody singing like acoustic kind of like I don't know yeah. tiny little tables a little lamps on them uh that would be a really big dream <laughs> in Athens by the way yeah. <laughs> yeah. but these are goals that they aren't committed to yet it's important to them but as of right now, it's much easier to have no goals than working towards one. A person who is stuck can feel like there's no way out. One of the best ways to overcome is to lean on someone else. Romantic partners often have a significant impact on our ability to reach their goal and overcome hardship. Evie and Bill acted as each other's primary social support networks as they navigated through the stages of grief. No. <laughs> we're very strong uh, in our marriage, um, and uh, it's, you know, we haven't always gotten along. It's, it hasn't been perfect, and uh, but it's, uh, it's always been, I feel like, an above-average relationship. There's always something <laughs> special there, yeah. and um, always been a lot of love. And since the accident, it's, uh, we've been really good I think about being there for each other like I you know Evie's been there for me in ways that she understood and I didn't like she knew what I needed I had no idea what I needed and uh, no one else could have done that. In Evie and Bill's case their romantic bond was strong enough to help them through the difficult moments in their healing process. They support each other in ways that friends might not be able to. They also found themselves struggling to get involved with social situations outside of their relationship. In other words, it's become very difficult for them to maintain a social support network outside of just the two of them. Which makes sense. I mean, if you're going through something like this, this hard, and the only other person that you want to talk to is your husband who went through it with you, it makes sense that you wouldn't want to let anybody else in. Yeah, or you just don't know how to. I any kind of commitment, like anything like that. And yeah, we know our, <laughs> yeah, I got invited to a dinner party. Then like, I was like, I'm out of my element. I feel comfortable. I need to get away. I need to get out. I need to get out. Like, um, uh, yeah, it's really, 
that you love to be around. It's, it's your safe zone is your people that you know. <laughs> You've yeah. already like eased your way in. <laughs> you know, they told them about the accident. They know. They kind of most people then know to steer away from talking about their children or talking about the kids that just graduated high school or. <laughs> Or just learn to drive. Like, can't tell you how many people have told us. Like, daughter's getting married. My grandkids are so great. Despite its difficulty, Evie has been able to create and maintain close friendships with her coworkers that have helped her through some of the most difficult days. For me, I knew the one thing, the one thing for me that made a difference was being around people. Um, And... And coworkers, you know, most a lot of them have become, you know, great friends. And and being around laughter and and socializing has been huge to me. From our conversation with her, it seems that her social support group eventually fit the style of support that she needed. Evie and Bill had a difficult time adjusting to their loss immediately following the accident. This was exacerbated by the diff by the distance their home in Georgia was from their families. Evie and Bill sought out therapy soon after the accident. Even though they both felt like they had a great therapist, it really wasn't working for them. It felt like a way of like reliving their trauma every Wednesday at 4 p.m. So they did mention that despite the fact that it didn't work for them, they said it may still help others. Like we, we had a great therapist at the beginning who was just amazing. She... Um, she, it was huge. I don't, it just, it, therapy wasn't as great as I thought it was going to be. After a while, like, you just, you're like, oh, I don't want to be anxious going once a week. Like, it gives you so much anxiety thinking about, like, oh, I'm going to cry every time I go. Like, it's just so heavy and hard. And I was like, you know started working at alumni and I was like maybe I'm just gonna oh, I'm just gonna like not go for a while and see how that is and it was it was a relief and I hate to say that I don't well, let's talk about the worst thing that could ever happen to you at four o'clock every Wednesday if the message wasn't clear before let it be stressed now social support is very crucial in the healing process especially in one like Evie and Bill's we have to know how to give support and how to ask for it. Uh, tell your family exactly what you need. Like, tell them exactly what you want from them. Yeah. Um, they'll do it, and they just don't know what to do. Yeah. And it would be better for everybody. Uh, to whoever's around you, family or whatever, just let them know what you need. Uh, and in the beginning, telling people, like, hey, I, I can't even pay my bills. Like, can you pay my bills? I'll give you free reign to my bank account. Like, you know brother, mother, somebody, um, can you come and mow my lawn religiously or, or hire somebody or do all of that? Like, that is the stuff that you think Any you can do. Stress. The most important task for us as support networks is to listen. Families and friends can provide some of the best support through simple means. Providing practical support, like dropping off meals, mowing their lawn, and social integration which is just making them feel included and showing up. Bill and Evie mentioned that they just needed help with daily things. So keep an eye out for the things you're doing in your life and offer to do those for someone else. I actually watched this video pretty recently of this older woman who needed her lawn cut. Mm -hmm. And 
the neighborhood officer decided to stop what she was doing and mow this woman's lawn for her. Aww. Like, you don't know what people are going through in their everyday lives. Nope. And maybe this older woman was going through something like this. Or maybe she just couldn't do her own lawn. Like, this officer, if, if we do in our daily lives what this officer did, everybody's lives would improve. It's just that extra step of kindness and going yeah. above and beyond for others. One thing Edie and Bill noticed was how hard it was for other people to try to relate to them. I think grief, like especially pain, like after the accident, you have so many people who, when you say I lost both of my only children in a car accident, who then in their only way that they know how to connect to you or to to sympathize with you is to compare their grief with the loss of somebody but it, it has come down to like comparison of losing a dog uh breaking up with a girlfriend and people are compelled people. to tell you the worst thing that ever happened to them yeah. when they learn about the boys and it's i didn't realize it until i went back to work and i had to tell i worked in a lot of different places and yeah. so I had to go through the story a bunch of different times and I remember coming home all the time and like this person said this weird thing and this person said this weird yeah. thing it's like everybody just wants to pour out it's an effort to meet you at your your pain your level yeah. of pain um but some people haven't had very bad <laughs> things happen in their life and that's great I'm yeah. glad about that but yeah. um but yeah and it is odd for Evie and Bill Having other people compare themselves to their level of grief conveyed a real lack of awareness. People wanted to help and offer sympathy, but it wasn't effective. Please don't try to match your level of grief to someone else's. Just be mindful of how much they've actually lost and let them use that interaction to communicate and to heal and to reach out. Even when people are, are offering good support and they're doing it out of the kindness of their heart, it's not always easy to receive it. I think, too, it really kind of, and it's sad to say, but it, it, for me in the beginning, too, it seemed like a, a free pass to um, to do things I wouldn't normally do, like not call my mom back, <laughs> not answer her phone call. Um, you know, those are things that I would have never, ever done before the accident. And, um, or not answering the phone when you see it's somebody that, you know, in your family, um, an uncle or an aunt or a cousin. And um, it kind of, for me, gave me a free pass at like, well, they'll understand. <laughs> they'll understand if I can't they do did. it. Yeah. yeah, and they did. Um, but yeah, it just, um, it, it did, it made me do things like turn away, you know, holidays and stuff you would never not be with your family over the holiday you know like but it was it was a way to it was a it, it was a they were nice to forgive us for that <laughs> not that they wouldn't be mad you know many people need space after going through something major bill and evie's family have been instrumental in providing them support even in understanding that sometimes all they need was time alone it's important to remember that everyone handles situations like this differently. Sometimes what's good for one person isn't the best thing for someone else. In this episode, we shed a light on the more difficult side of pursuing goals. Through Evie and Bill's experiences, we have learned about the significant hardships that can come from losing an identity goal. They shared with us their experiences of coping and taught us how we can all offer better social support to other people who are going through hard times. 
At times, pushing through the middle of a goal may seem impossible. Friends and family can provide simple yet effective support to help move you forward. We also want to take the time to give thanks to Evie and Bill for sharing their story with us and letting us share that story with you guys. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Gold Diggers. We would like to give a special shout out to the UGA Digital Media Wing in the MLC. Make sure to hit that subscribe button and follow us on Instagram at Gold Diggers Podcast. And that's Gold Diggers with a Z. Thanks, season one. All right. Till next time.